Okay, well, welcome everyone. I think we're going to get started because it's 8 o'clock. We want to finish certainly by 9, no later than that. Um, welcome to the third of these three seminars looking at three of the big themes of the Reformation and three big Protestant truths that came out from it. Uh, the idea that it's through faith alone that we are put right with God through Christ's death, that it's through uh, Christ alone that we are brought to give God the glory alone as well. As we saw last time, look at Calvin. Tonight, looking at Cranmer and the idea that it's Scripture alone which should form and shape and guide not only our public worship when we meet, but also our very Christian living. The whole idea of public worship is, of course, for God to transform our lives, our daily lives through it as well. The reason that we've, we've done these three seminars is not just it's to do with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but that it's, it's really good to look at individuals, of biographies of Christian leaders from the past, because both they inspire us, it's always just good to hear a story of what God's done through someone, and we can see something of relevance from some of the truths that they were thinking about and learning for our own generation today. And I think that's true of the Reformation. We've seen that already in the other two seminars and I'm sure we'll see it again tonight with Cranmer and the theme of Scripture alone. So if you have the handout, you'll see on there that we're going to look at this um, theme of Scripture alone really with two main headings. We'll look at how Scripture alone shapes our faith and salvation, and then at Scripture alone and how it should shape our public worship and Cranmer's part in discovering and unearthing and really living out, expressing those truths. So to introduce Thomas Cranmer to us, he was born, um, as you'll see there, in 1483 from a middle-class family. Um, he wasn't outstanding as a student at university. He went up to Cambridge um, and studied there, beginning for the priesthood, so studying theology. But in those days, it was required that Catholic priests should be celibate, i.e. not married, and he rather blew that by marrying someone called Joan in 1515. And that meant that he immediately had to resign his plan to become a priest, and he became instead a, a theology teacher in the university. Uh, she was, actually, she was the, the relative of the owner of a pub in Cambridge called the Dolphin Inn in Cambridge, but his enemies later accused of marrying a barmaid, which actually wasn't the case at all. She was from a respectable middle-class stock. Um, sadly, though, only a year later, Joan died in childbirth. The child sadly died as well. Um, and so that did mean he could resume his training for priesthood, for the ministry. Um, he was ordained in 1519, so he actually took a very long time with his training. No one quite knows why. Um, and became a lecturer in theology at Jesus College in Cambridge. He must have been reading through that time some of the writings, not just of the Bible, but of Martin Luther and other uh, Protestant reformers from Germany, uh, because he was rediscovering the value of ancient texts, um, of the ancient Greek and Latin writers, and especially the Bible itself. Because we know this because in the early 1520s he was lecturing and he was telling students who were training to be particularly monks, so novice monks, that they were to read the Bible and not just medieval scholastic philosophy, which 
which is the kind of very obscure, very logical thinking of the medieval Catholic philosophy school. Um, and he was telling them, you can't just read that, so you must read the Bible itself, because that's what you need to know as a monk or a priest. Now, it was around about that time, the 1520s, that Henry VIII was on the throne. Um, very famous, influential monarch, as you know. And he was moving into, Cran was moving into this time of political change. Uh, because Henry, as you, I'm sure, know, was a very colourful monarch. Um, he was saw himself as a kind of Renaissance monarch, so very studious, very well-read, very articulate, educated, interested in music and, uh, and theology and faith as well. Um, and he also married Catherine of Aragon, who was from a Catholic um, family in Spain and was the widow of... Um, his own brother. So he married his daughter's widow. And they had the daughter Mary from uh, that first marriage of Henry. Mary was, as I said earlier in the service, uh, from a Catholic tradition. But still no male heir. And that was troubling Henry. He wondered if it was God's judgment on him for marrying his wife's uh, widow, his, his brother's widow, that he uh, was not able to produce a male heir. And it was in this time of, of Henry's search for a divorce from Catherine that he came across Cranmer. Cranmer was staying at Waltham Abbey in Hertfordshire and discussing with someone there the topic of the king's divorce and would it be not legal in Catholic law but theologically would it be right for Henry's first marriage to be dissolved, to be declared unlawful according to scripture, not just church law. And that became a very important principle for, for Cranmer that what scripture said mattered more than church canon law. Uh, it was said in those days only the Pope could dispense um, a divorce or a declaration that a marriage was unlawful and nullify it. Um, but the, the king heard about Cramer's ideas, that actually theologians could make the decision. It didn't have to go to the Pope. And so he got to meet Cramer. He asked Cramer to do some work on it and write a book about it. And Cramer concluded that, marriage was, that the marriage of Henry had been unlawful according to some verses in the Bible in the book of Leviticus... But Henry had, I'm sure, uh, made sure of Cranmer coming up with this solution because he made him stay at the house belonging to the father of no other than Anne Boleyn. So here was Henry becoming friendly with Anne Boleyn and probably also Anne's sister. And the Boleyn family were a Protestant family. They'd been influenced by Lutheranism already. And so here is Henry beginning to get contact with Protestant thinking as well through the Boleyns. And Cranmer lives with them and no doubt is aware that Henry's quite keen to divorce Catherine and marry Anne. In 1530, he sends, uh, Henry sends Cranmer to Italy to negotiate with universities in Italy for the divorce there, to get them on the side. Um, in this country, he managed to persuade the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and others, and also in France, to support the idea that the marriage of Henry had been unlawful, and, hey presto, Henry makes Cranmer chaplain to Anne Boleyn and then to himself. He becomes king's chaplain. He sent as an ambassador then to the court of the emperor, the new emperor, Henry uh, Charles X, the emperor of the, that's the Holy Roman Empire. But he travels via the German town of Nuremberg, where he comes across Lutherans, Protestants, really for the first time in person. 
and he meets these, these churchgoers, these priests who do things like eating meat in Lent. Catholics didn't you fasted in Lent from meat. Um, they read the Bible in church every day, would you believe? And the clergy even were married and had wives. And one of them, one of Cranmer's friends said they were amongst the most handsome women in Germany. And it was there um, during that time that he met and married Margaret, his second wife, the first, remember, had died, who was a niece of one of the Lutheran reformers, Osiander. So here again, Cranmer's being heavily influenced by Protestant Lutheran ideas, even though he is Archbishop of Canterbury in what was still a Roman Catholic church under the authority of the Pope. And it must have been round about that time that he began to form really clear conclusions about what the Bible said, about how we're put right with God, that it's justification by faith alone. Luther's big thing, as we saw. And Cranmer is convinced of that by now. And that leads him, of course, to begin to question some of the other Catholic doctrines of the medieval period that weren't found in the scriptures. Um, So the idea that there were seven sacraments, not just the two that Jesus had ordained. The idea of praying for the dead, the idea of purgatory and confession to priests as one of the sacraments. 1533, Henry asked him to become Archbishop. Again, I'm sure, why is the fact that Cramer's going to be a, an influential person to have on his side if he's about to make a break from the Pope, which he is? Cramer was very reluctant to become Archbishop. He didn't want to be associated with the divorce proceeding um, and with the obvious accusation of, uh, against Henry that he'd simply broken away from the Pope in order to marry Anne Boleyn. But he reluctantly agreed, um, because Henry had that way of persuading people on pain of death. And Henry married Anne Boleyn in May. And Elizabeth, uh, his second daughter, was born in September of the same year. Next year, 1534, Henry then persuades the Parliament to pass the Act of Succession, which basically declared that um, it was right that Anne should be queen and that her offspring, if any should be the heirs to the crown ahead of Mary, Catherine's daughter. Then he passed the Act of Supremacy, which was the the big break, making him, Henry, the supreme head over the church and no longer the Pope in Rome. The Act of Supremacy. Cranmer was supportive of this because he'd already seen the potential of taking the Reformation that he'd seen in Germany forward in England and spreading it here. Uh, But actually, he was always a very fair man. Um, He protected Mary and Elizabeth when, later on, they were in great danger as the Reformation went forward and Catholics required to swear obedience to Henry as head of the church, and by conviction, Mary particularly wanted to see the Pope as head of the church. She was still very much Roman Catholic uh, to the end of her life. But he protected uh, Mary in that time, from being punished by Henry for that. He was, though, becoming known as a heretic, meaning a Protestant in those days. So people were picking up that the Archbishop of Canterbury was beginning to bring in what were then radical new ideas about what it meant to be a Christian, about what church life should look like, Lutheran ideas. Um, the, Arch- the Bishop of Norwich, Richard Nix, uh, who was a traditionalist, a, a Roman Catholic, 
had had a number of Protestants persecuted, including famous martyr called Thomas Bilney, uh, put to death. Um, and Cranmer acted against Bishop Nix and, and you know, criticized him for acting too harshly against these heretics, the Protestants, um, as at various points in that period, Henry stuck to his Catholic guns and regarded Protestants as heretical. So here is Cranmer beginning to defend Protestants, defending Lutherans who were being persecuted by the Catholics. Hugh Latimer, um, who went on to become a very influential reforming bishop, was seen as a heretic, um, but, Protestant, but, but uh, Cranmer appointed him as a preacher in the whole of his province of Canterbury. Even told him to go and preach to the king and queen one day. Just told him to tone it down a bit and not criticise too many Catholic doctrines. So here he is, he's, he's quietly, not even quietly, but certainly subtly introducing means by which scripture's getting into people's ears, into people's churches, clergy beginning to be uh, guided to preach Protestant doctrines and to begin to let go of Catholic ones, the medieval Catholic ones. The king himself was making his own mind up in this period. No one quite knows quite how Protestant he became, even to, to the end of his life. Um, but he certainly made it illegal to criticise Protestant doctrines too strongly. It may just be a political move to keep the Catholics and Protestants kind of balancing each other for power. But he's certainly open to some of the new ideas that are coming in from the Reformation. Some of you will, will know of Thomas Cromwell. Uh, and Thomas Cromwell was uh, the, the other great political figure under Henry. Um, Henry had this, this uh, very strong, tyrannical almost leadership style in his time as king. But Thomas Cromwell was really his fixer for, for a decade between sort of 1530 and 1540, as he was called his vice regent, his kind of second in command. And if you've either read or seen the series Wolf Hall, all about Thomas Cromwell, um, he came to a sticky end in the end partly because of his Protestant beliefs. But he was a Lutheran, um, a very committed Protestant, who was very keen to enable Cranmer to take the church reformation forward. And it was Cromwell who began the suppression of the monasteries in about 1535. So as you may be aware, monasteries like the one here at Norwich Cathedral, the monasteries were, were closed down, pulled down, um, the medieval relics were taken away um, and either burnt or sold and the monasteries were closed. And the intention was, of course, to reform the church. Um, so someone like Cromwell and Cranmer would have wanted that to happen uh, because it meant an end to some of the superstitious practices of the, the monasteries and the churches, prayers to the dead, the saying of masses on behalf of those in purgatory, and the whole financial thing behind that, driven by money, a lot of it, you're paying for your dead aunt to have a prayer said for her by a monk in a side chapel in the cathedral. All of that was finished, but sadly, instead of the money then going to the poor, as the reformers wanted, the money was taken and given to Henry's friends, and he gave them lands and wealth instead. So it became very much a mixed blessing, the, uh, the suppression of the monasteries. Henry published a document called the Ten Articles around this time, which omitted mentioning the seven sacraments. Um, so again, that was radical because it was sort of doctrine from the medieval church that there were seven sacraments as well as baptism and communion, the ones in the Bible, 
given by Jesus, there were five others, including things like confirmation, uh, marriage, uh, and confession to a priest. So he omitted the mention of those, which is a, a Protestant move from Henry. Um, but he didn't go as far as condemning things like purgatory or praying to the saints. So there's that kind of Catholic bit of Henry still there, still playing his bets both ways. But even that was radical enough that there was a revolt in Lincolnshire that spread to the dangerous counties of Essex and Suffolk, demanding that Cranmer, who was seen as the kind of real author behind this, be either arrested or exiled for his Protestant heretical beliefs. Uh, that whole theology of, of the sacraments was um, firmed up, clarified by another book called the Bishop's Book in 1537, which listed the two they're called dominical sacraments, the one that the Lord Jesus gave us, but also the other five as less significant but still there as sacraments, a kind of a compromise, with Cranmer pointing out that the early church fathers actually spoke of even more than that, more than seven as sacraments, signs pointing us to Jesus, but that only two came from the Bible. Henry was uh, editing, again very interested in theology, edited the book, made his comments in the margin, Cranmer, though, told him not to paraphrase Bible quotations. Uh, okay to paraphrase or edit what a theologian had written, but not what the Bible said, he said, because, quoting from 2 Peter, uh, the scriptures are wholly dictated by the Holy Spirit. So again, just very courageous, actually, to say to the king, no, you can't touch that bit. You touch that, but not the scriptures. So all the way through the 1530s, in this very uncertain political time, Henry VIII, who would chop off your head if you stepped out of line, and got in his way. Cromwell, again, a very powerful vice-regent. Here is Cranmer doing his best, however he can, in the political climate, to get change brought into the church. But it's slow and slow and slow progress. So what does Cranmer have to teach us about the, the, the kind of first big theme, scripture alone in faith and salvation? Um, that's the kind of first big thing. Well, Cranmer is becoming more and more convinced that, that Luther's got the Bible right, that we are put right with God, justified by faith alone through what Christ has done, and that the number of sacraments should be reduced to two, baptism and communion. And Cranmer is concluding that where the Pope was claiming, as they always had through the medieval period, to have the Holy Spirit upon the Pope particularly as, as, as a descent of the apostles in Catholic doctrine, to, con to continue to dispense truth because the Spirit's been passed down through the apostles to the Pope, Cranmer's beginning to say, no, that promise was to the apostles of Jesus and it was a promise that the teaching of Jesus to them would be passed on faithfully by them. It wasn't that future uh, popes would have a hotline to truth themselves. It was simply the apostles passing on the teaching of Jesus faithfully. And Cranmer's looking around the country in this time and he's seeing um, this, the importance of getting this truth, the gospel, back into the church. He's seeing how low the literacy of the country is. Many people couldn't read at all. And he's seeing the Bible, the only Bibles in the country are in Latin and they're in mostly in monasteries, not even in churches very often. The clergy couldn't necessarily read Latin. Um, they certainly weren't able to teach and preach from the Bible in their services. And that's where the, kind of the first big thing really happened, the appearance of the English Bible, the first English Bible. Thomas Cromwell, 
as I said, the vice-regent, he was a Protestant. He ruled that an English Bible should be placed in every parish church within 12 months of his edict. Um, Cranmer had worked with him on this. He'd sent him a copy of William Tyndale's Bible, um, which was completed, because uh, he didn't translate the whole thing um, into English himself, by someone called Miles Coverdale and a friend of his called John Rogers. It was called Matthew's Bible, long story, it was called Matthew's Bible. And Cranmer saw this edition and said, I like it more than any other. And he wrote to, to Cromwell saying we should get this into the, into the churches. And Cromwell pushed that through and it was passed as law. that Every church should have a Bible in English in the parish church. And that was the first time it ever happened. First time it ever happened. So this is the, the first big thing Cranmer did. The first thing to reform the church. Get a Bible in English. Where the clergy will read it, the people will hear it. Cranmer was beginning to get opposition, as I've said, from people calling him a heretic for his Protestant ideas, um, not just from the, uh, the kind of ordinary people who were revolting in Lincolnshire and Suffolk, but actually from some very powerful people. He wrote to one of them uh, who'd said to him, look, you, you bring all these newfangled ideas into the church, your Protestant heretical new ideas, um, stick to the old ways. And he wrote back to say, actually, the Protestant faith I'm introducing here is the old one. That's the one in the Bible and the early church fathers It's your medieval Catholic ideas that are new. He said, such is your blindness that you call old what is new and new what is old. That's always been the important thing about the Reformation. It wasn't introducing a new idea or a new church. It's getting back to the real old church of the Bible, of the New Testament. Cranmer went into a dangerous time after this, the kind of early 1540s, because Henry was beginning to kind of track away from Protestant to becoming more Catholic again, um, probably because he was wanting to, to marry Catherine Howard, who came from a Catholic family, and he was putting some distance between himself and the Lutherans. So he married the German Anne of Cleves from a Lutheran origin, um, famously you know, didn't like the look of her, um, so poor Catherine only lasted a few months, divorced her, and married the, the Catholic Catherine Howard. And it was that time that Thomas Cromwell met his sticky end, because he'd been too well-known as a Protestant and also was accused of treason and other things. Cranmer survived Henry's wrath against Cromwell, um, not just because he was a favourite of of Henry, but Henry, I think, knew that whilst he had these Catholic people taking power in his cabinet again, he needed Cranmer there as a Protestant to balance them, to kind of control their power. So all these shrewd political things Henry was doing, Cranmer stayed there. Cranmer was beginning to write things with his Protestant views in them, um, particularly writing about the communion service. There's great debate through this period between the Catholics and the Protestants. Catholic doctrine said that in the communion service, the bread and the wine uh, literally, physically, become the body and blood of Christ. Um, So a, a complicated philosophical thing happens. It goes back to Aristotle, actually, whereby the the bread takes on the nature of Christ's body. It's no longer bread, it's actually Christ's body. That was transubstantiation, the Catholic thing. Protestants said, no, that, that isn't the case, um, but actually had two slightly different views as well. Luther said um, that in some extraordinary way, the bread is still bread, but it's also the body of Christ, because Jesus said, this is my body. It was as kind of simple as that for Luther. But others, um, like Calvin and um, in Switzerland, Swingley, said, no, the bread and wine 
um, are spiritually a sign of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, but not physically, because Christ is in heaven um, and the bread and wine are, are here on the table. Um, but still believe very powerfully that, that Christ is present to us, the receivers of the bread and wine, as we eat and drink. So it's called the, the spiritual presence. Luther believed in the real presence, and the Catholics believed in the transubstantiation. Uh, and, and Cranmer was moving um, from, obviously, the Catholic view to the Lutheran view, and then to the spiritual presence view in that time. He wrote, figuratively... Christ is in the bread and wine, symbolically, metaphorically. Spiritually, he is in those that worthily eat and drink. So it's about the receiver of the bread and wine. That's where Christ is present, not in the bread and wine itself. Spiritually, he's in those that worthily eat and drink, but physically, corporally, he is in heaven. And that was the kind of orthodox position of most of the reformers uh, as time went on. The power of communion lies in the faith of the receiver, in the sign, the bread and wine, that points to Jesus, not in the prayer of the priest. Uh, We'll look at that in a few minutes as I give you a chance to to talk about it um, in one of our discussions. Cranmer was beginning to fill um, as much as he could of of the Church of England with scripture. So with Henry dying in 1547, here came the chance with the new king, Protestant King Edward, a number of Protestant leaders around him to really begin to change things. So the English Bible was the first thing under Henry. Now he brings in um, some homilies. They were basically sermons because he knew that the the clergy weren't trained or equipped to prepare and preach sermons from the Bible, so he kind of wrote them for them. Um, And particularly he wrote three. Uh, The best one, the best known one, is one called the Homily of Salvation, which simply teaches the Lutheran, the biblical idea, that we are saved by faith alone, we're justified by faith alone, um, but then he famously goes on very quickly with the, the homily of good works to say, yes, we're saved by faith alone and not by works at all. We don't contribute our good works to our salvation, but faith alone must always be accompanied by good works, must be united to good works. He says, always very strong on that, that as we come to Christ through faith alone, and not by good works, Christ changes our hearts by his spirit, and we begin to do good works. So faith, but actually never faith alone without good works to follow. But the good works do not save you, he would say. So you you can Google those online if you want to read his homilies. They're online, you can find them. Uh, And in this this period, um, the early years of Edward, he produced his first prayer book, which we'll come back to in our second section in a minute, and he also wrote the 42 articles of, of doctrine, um, which are basically pretty orthodox Christian Protestant doctrine, um, affirming the creed, the place of scripture, the authority of scripture, um, the number of sacraments being two. Um, and they later became, 100, 100 years later, became the 39 articles that are still really the closest thing the church has to a statement of faith. The 39 articles, he started the 42. I'm going to stop there, I think, because it would be a great chance for you to just have a a, a talk together um, and explore this theme of how Cranmer sees the scriptures pointing us to faith and to salvation, and that we should look to no other place than the scriptures to know how to be saved and how to live our Christian life, faith and salvation through scriptures alone. So 
Um, let me hand over to you. Now, on your handouts, you'll see you've got um, a quotation from um, Cranmer there and a kind of question to discuss that follows it. I'm very aware that um, last week, my apologies, I'd, I'd um, I think, given you some far too complicated questions. I've done my best to be more straightforward this week. You're dealing with you know, a late medieval guy writing English, so we have to kind of work with, with his style. Um, but if you're baffled, just stick a hand up. I'll come and try and help you. But let's just take, if, you, if you'd like to, just take five minutes or so. Turn in twos and threes, shall we? Just read through that quotation there, and then a couple of questions that follow it, and we'll come back together in a few minutes' time and look at part two, the other big section, for the rest of our time tonight. So over to you. Say hello to someone near you. Have a bit of fun discussing this topic together. Shall we come back together? Great, so I hope you saw um, in that rather long sentence of Cranmer's there um, from his homily that uh, what he's saying is that our salvation rests in the mercy of God, the work of Christ, and our only contribution is our faith. And as it says in Ephesians, that's a gift of God as well, actually. Um, So but he's saying, don't think that we have a part to play. We don't bring something and say, look, I've done that, so forgive me and, and save me. We just say, you've done it all for me, I trust in you, that's faith. So that's the kind of great thing, that's the very Protestant biblical, that's Romans, that's Galatians, that's the biblical thing that Cranmer found. And then the second question there, um, what's he mean by saying that love and good works must be joined with faith but do not justify us? He's saying that um, if your faith does not lead you to some kind of transformed life, a process of transformation by God's spirit in you, then you haven't got true faith at all. True faith will lead to good works. That's what the letter of James says, isn't it? True faith will lead to good works. But always remember, as he says, that those good works don't justify us. They're a sign that our faith is alive, but they don't justify us in God's eyes. That's what he's saying. Just, it's just straight down the line, Bible, Protestant teaching. Is that okay? Any quick questions on that? Great. Well, let's press on then um, and look at part two and the theme of scripture alone over the page now in shaping public worship. Uh, and again, I, I'm going to say a few things here about particularly the prayer books um, that Cranmer wrote. Um, and then I'll, I'll just give you a chance to discuss what he has to say about, or what the communion service says about communion, which I touched on earlier. Um, until the Reformation, um, across Europe, including England, the only services available in churches or monasteries were ones in Latin, and they were very complicated. Um, there were dozens of prayer books. In a monastery, there would have been eight services a day, the octave it was called, with different service books for each one. Um, so you had this kind of pile of service books, all different. Um, and not only that, different churches and dioceses, so you know, Norwich Diocese or uh, Canterbury Diocese or London or York, they'd all have their own services as well. So some called Serum, um, which was the, the particular services used in Salisbury Diocese. So very confusing, very complicated, and all in Latin. And so Cranmer comes along and starts saying, we've got to have the prayer books in English, and we've got to make it simple for everyone to use the same prayer book. Um, And he began with something called the litany in English, which was a kind of set of responsive prayers. Um, That was the first set of prayers 
pretty much that we'd ever had in our own language, certainly officially published for the church in England. Um, and he then replaced this complicated collection of daily prayers with what we call the prayer book. First edition was in 1549. Um, and the purpose of him doing this was not simply to make everyone say the same prayers, um, not simply to kind of tidy up church worship, but because he knew that it was as people come to church together and hear the scriptures read and say the words of the scriptures together, that's how our faith grows, that's how our lives change. Same as Calvin again, isn't it? Right thinking leads to right living, and actually right worship together leads to right thinking, leads to right living. So he sees the power of gathered worship to transform lives. And he works out, in English, full of scripture, that's the recipe. And that's what all his prayer books do. Um, So in the the prayer books, he omits any reference. Again, remember, this is still this kind of um, just moving from being a Catholic church to being a Protestant church in England. He omits references to purgatory. He omits references to the clergy wearing particular vestments to serve uh, the Mass, which he calls communion now for the first time. He omits mention of praying for the dead. And at the ordination services, the priests are no longer given a, um, the, the silver cup, the chalice. Um, they're now given a Bible instead. So very symbolic changes happening here. That The focus of ministry is now the scriptures and not the kind of particular power for the sacraments. Uh, the prayer book was well received by many parts of the country, but there were riots in Devon. Um, the West Country people did not like it at all. Um, they, they wanted their... Uh, communion to be uh, traditionally in what was called one kind, in other words, just the bread, not the wine. That was, again, medieval tradition. The wine was too holy, the blood of Christ, you just have the bread. They only wanted communion or mass at Easter once a year, and Cranmer said that should be at least weekly. Uh, and of course, there was also Ketz rebellion in Norfolk at that time, which was partly, again, about some of these reactions against the Protestant teaching of the prayer book, partly political too. And Cramer takes the prayer book and he fills it with scripture. So as we saw earlier in our service, um, he, he puts the reading of Psalms into every service, um, the reading of scripture every day. So if you, if you uh, say the prayer book every day of the month, you'll go through the whole book of Psalms, over a year, go through the whole New Testament, big chunks of the Old Testament, scripture everywhere. Um, and he insists that the sermon must now be based on the Bible readings. And you kind of think, well, obviously, because that's kind of what we're used to, perhaps. But previously, they'd be based probably uh, either the, the ideas and anecdotes of the priest or um, an elaboration of the life of one of the saints. And Cramer says, no, 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 that's all very nice, but let's preach the scripture. Uh, he takes these ancient prayers called the colics. They were gathering prayers written often, very good prayers written in the sort of 5th, 6th century um, by popes from, from the, the early church. Um, he takes them from Latin and puts them into English and he puts them into beautiful English. You know, we, we prayed at one of the prayers earlier about the devices and desires of our own hearts. Some very memorable phrases rolling off the tongue Things that you repeat them a lot, you just begin to know them by heart. Very powerful language. Had a big influence on the English, I said earlier, the marriage service. Um, That it's for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's one of his rolling, rhyming phrases that he comes up with. Um, And 
at the same time as translating into English with the old Latin prayers, he is adjusting the teaching, the doctrine within the prayer to a clearly Protestant understanding. So um, words like God's grace going before us. Um, it's only of your grace and not our merits that we're saved. Those kind of Protestant ideas, again straight from the Bible, are coming into the colics and, and improving them with biblical content. So he's doing a tremendous work here, putting scripture all the way through the prayer book, 1549. Um, he wasn't happy with that. It was a bit of a compromise. It still had some Catholic ideas in it. He had to do that, he felt, to get it through the Parliament, because the Catholic bishops had a lot of power in Parliament still. Um, and in fact, there was a, a Catholic opponent of his, Bishop Gardiner, who he, he liked it very much, he said, which was for Cranmer's kind of, that was the death, and he had to write it again and revise it in, in that case. So he did. And 1552, his second prayer book came out, which was, in many would say, was the kind of the purest uh, Protestant prayer book the church has ever had. Um, and all the way through, he's writing elegant, memorable English. Um, some of the English didn't work. I mentioned things like devices, desires of our own hearts, lovely language like that. Um, in his 1550 book, he, he talked about God's immarcessible crown of glory. I don't know if any of you know, I didn't know what that meant. Immarcessible. Um, and that was changed to the unfading crown of glory in the 1662 prayer book. So they did make some changes to some of his English in the later prayer book that became... The prayer book, it still is the prayer book for the Church of England, actually, um, even with common worship nowadays. 1553, uh, the Protestant regime ends, at least temporarily, because Edward VI, the young boy king, dies. And his big sister, the Catholic, remember, Mary, Catherine's daughter, comes to the throne. And she is fiercely Catholic and wants to return the, the, the church of this country to the Pope, um, back under his authority and return the ways of the church to the pre-Reformation Catholic services. And uh, he sees the writing on the wall immediately. He sees that persecution is going to come for the Protestants. Um, so he tells his, his European friends he's brought to this country, a guy called Martin Bootser, Peter Martyr, a Swiss a Protestant reformer. He says to them, get out of the country while he still can. So they flee to Europe. Um, he sends his wife and children um, as well to Germany for safety. Um, but he stays himself because he knows that he, he needs to be there to maintain the Protestant cause in the Church of England. Um, he's shortly, about a year later, after Mary becomes queen, he's arrested with the other bishops along with him, like Ridley and Latimer. He's given pretty much a sham trial. Um, he's, he's publicly stripped of his bishop's clothing. He's made to watch... <coughs> Ridley and Latimer um, tragically, memorably burning to death in Oxford. Um, and famously, and just one of the many great quotes from some of these Reform Reformation martyrs, Latimer and Ridley were burnt together at the stake um, with Cramer watching from the prison window. And he says, uh, Latimer says to Ridley as the flames you know, begin to uh, inflict pain upon them, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man Today we shall light such a fire in England as shall never be extinguished. Very courageous words um, from Latin. who's always a kind of you know, bullish, enthusiastic Protestant to, to Ridley. Uh, and Paul Cram has to watch this. Um, and uh, along with the um, bullying trial he's put through, it begins to break his spirit probably. People you know, speculate just how broken was he um, by watching 
um, that burning taking place and knowing that's probably going to be his own destiny. Um, And so at some point over the next year or so, um, he begins to write recantations of his Protestant doctrine. In other words, he begins to write um, signed documents saying, you know all that stuff about the um, purgatory being wrong? I shouldn't have written that. All that stuff about the Pope not being the head of the church and being in error, I should never have written that. My prayer books, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, Almost certainly it was um, because mentally and emotionally he'd been broken by what had been put through. Um, So he recants. And this is one of the big discussions about Cranmer. Was was he a coward for recanting? Um, But I I think men would have a lot of sympathy for him with what he's been through. So he swears loyalty to the Pope. um, But then he finds that although even in the Catholic Church, this brutal medieval world... Um, a repentant heretic should not be put to death, he then finds they're planning to burn him anyway. So he begins to, to plot something um, that uh, on the day of his martyrdom he will read in public. And he writes something with, with Catholics watching over him. He writes a document recanting one more time you know, and saying, I think the Pope is great. Um, he's the supreme authority I was wrong in the erroneous doctrines I taught I repent of those um, and, and I put into the flames first the hand that wrote those heretical ideas and he shows it to the Catholics and they say that's great, you make sure you read that tomorrow morning and they lead him out into the um, square in Oxford and it's a wet March morning and he starts reading the document and most of it's you know, conventionally what they expected affirms his faith in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Then he gets to this section where he's meant to be effectively recanting his Protestant ideas one more time, declaring himself a good Catholic before he dies. Um, And this is where he departed from the script, and famously this is what he said. All such bills or documents that I have written or signed with mine own hand since my degradation, that that was his humiliation, I recant of. And as much as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For if I may come to the fire, it, my hand, shall first be burnt. And he went on to say, as the kind of crowd began to uh, uproar against him, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist. Remember, this is medieval strong language. With all of his false doctrine, as for the sacrament, I believe as I have taught in my prayer book. And then they, they stopped him, they silenced him, they seized him, and they put him on the flames. So, at the end, a very courageous um, conclusion for Cranmer to a life um, juggling his convictions under the political machinations of the people over him. But a life actually which had a huge impact upon this country in the end. Um, so before I, I just give, give a chance to, to talk together for the last few minutes um, about what he says in the prayer book about communion, what's Cramer's legacy? As we've already said, he is the one that is responsible for so much scripture being in public worship, particularly in the Church of England, but actually through him in many other traditions in this country as well, that inherited it from the church. Um, so the place of the Bible in public worship um, in singing, in the Psalms, in the Bible readings, in the sermons, in the language of our prayers, which we use week by week in the church. The importance of preaching. As I've said, he was the one that said the sermon should be based upon the scriptures um, and not upon just the ideas of the priest. 
uh, the place of preaching and scriptural preaching in the church. Uh, we talked about the, how memorable his English is and the way that the prayers, um, once you begin to read them and say them, they, they kind of roll off the tongue. And if you hear them enough, they become memorable to you. Um, and we still use confessions in our services today that actually are simply slightly modernized versions of ones that he wrote um, all those years ago. Uh, and the Church of England communion service, um, a number of the forms of words there go straight back to Cranmer's use of English in the services he wrote. Um, and the very identity of the Church of England. Uh, it's still debated, what is the Church of England? Are we truly Reformed or Protestant, Evangelical and so on? The Church of England today is very confused, as you, I'm sure you know if you read the papers. But we are on very sure ground to say, going back to the Reformation 500 years and in the prayer book and the articles ever since, the Church of England in its documents is a Protestant and Reformed church. Some would say, you know, wish it had been more reformed, but we are not a Catholic church, we are a Protestant church, and our doctrines are there in the prayer books and the articles, and still actually are officially our doctrines as a church, whatever confusions we may receive sometimes from the discussions at Synod and so on. Uh, and of course, we should remember, we're talking about the Church of England, but the Church of England has had huge influence internationally through the Anglican Church, particularly in Africa, but actually in, um, in South Asia and other places as well. So this work of Cranmer, his use of English to convey the gospel, has actually been a worldwide thing in its impact. And it's still, in parts of the world, even more powerful, in fact, in Anglicanism than it is in the Church of England in this country today. So let me stop there, I think, and I'm going to um, just give you the last few minutes to turn back into your um, twos and threes and have a look again at the second uh, pair of questions, actually, there on the handout. Um, one is, the first quote in italics is from the prayer we say before communion. It's the, what we call the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer over the bread and wine before communion. And the second um, is a, a thanksgiving prayer that we say after receiving communion. You'll, re- you'll recognize some of the language if you've been around this church or other Anglican churches for any time at all. So let me hand over to you um, to talk about those two things, what Cramer's saying about the, the bread and wine um, and the moment of communion and what he's saying about how we respond to receiving communion and the language of sacrifice that Cramer uses there. Is that okay? Over to you. We'll come back together at nine for a closing prayer and again I'll be available for questions afterwards. Two quotes with a question, one about each. Well done. Um, I'm going to call us back there, I think, because it is nine o'clock. We want to finish um, and let folk get get back home um, with a busy week ahead, I'm sure, for some of us. If you have any questions about either those questions or anything to do with what we've looked at tonight, then do come and ask me. I'll, I'll be there in a minute. If you want to just get a great little book that talks us through the big ideas of the Reformation, including the stuff tonight, including a, a nice little section on the use of language, the importance of language, the Bible in your own language, this book called The Freedom Movement is a great book on that. And it nicely goes on and looks at the impact of the Reformation since then in education, in, in kind of social work and so on. So um, nice little book. We've got some more copies of that now on the resources table, along with the other ones that you can see there. They're there too as well. So have a look at those. Um, I think I'm right saying tonight's effectively the last 
night they'll be on display, isn't it, Carol? So have a look tonight for the Reformation resources there. Many, many thanks for coming. Um, let's keep praying that, that the important discoveries that they made then will continue to change our lives. It's all about, isn't it, the gospel that changes lives today for us this week. Um, and as they showed us, the gospel that changes lives, hearts, cultures, communities, society, education, the workplace, you name it. It's all about setting the gospel free to do what it can do in the lives of us as we live for Christ this week, in the lives of his people all around the city and the world today. So let's pray show as we finish now. And thank you very much for coming tonight. Father God, thank you for uh, the scriptures you've given us which point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, your word made flesh, um, who lived and died for us and for our sins, for our redemption and whom you have raised to new life and who is seated at your right hand in glory. May he have all the glory in our lives, we pray. May we be humble before you as the reformers first were, um, in gratitude at your mercy to us in Christ. But may we also experience your transforming work um, to show us the things you would have us be and do this week. And may you fill us with your spirit for all the works that you've set before us. As as Cramer taught us to pray, we offer you um, our souls and bodies as living sacrifices. Um, Praying that we may be pleasing to you and asking you'll send us out from here to live and to work to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we just close by thanking very much Carol who... Uh, organise the refreshments for tonight, our tutor refreshments, and all the students who very kindly have served it and washed up for us. Thank you all very much indeed. And thank you again. Have a wonderful week. God bless. And if we don't see you before, we shall see you next Sunday.